Happy Halloween, everybody. It's uh, October 31st today. It's the day that we honor monsters and ghouls. Um, and what better way to honor them than by listening to my podcast? Oh, 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 oh. Um, welcome back. Last week was a ramble. And um, it was a damn good ramble. I think it was actually just okay. But this week, I have for the first time ever... In the history of my show, of my show, of my podcast, I have a repeat guest um, by the name of Howard Kramer. You remember Howard? I interviewed him probably uh, in the summer. Howard was the longtime curator of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, where he lives. And um, we had a great chat, but of course my computer stinks. And we had to cut it short because my computer stinks. So we made an, uh, an arrangement to talk again, and we did. And uh, we had a whole bunch of stones left unturned, one of them being the influence of Jews, 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 Jewish people in uh, the music industry, which we talked a lot about. Um, we also talked a little bit about like the cursory of... Uh, of uh, I don't really know what you'd call it. It was sort of like that identification when you found out uh, an artist was Jewish. Uh, he cited Joey Ramone. I cited Henry Winkler. Not really in the same realm, but I'm sure at some point in the late 70s there was a novelty record with the Fonz in it. Um, but of course, um, we began everything on the phone uh, where we talked a little bit about Halloween and Halloween songs. And uh, that's where we're going to start this wonderful, wonderful interview. I hope you enjoy it. Howard is always a pleasure to talk to. He is a walking encyclopedia of all things music. Um, and it shows. And uh, I love chatting with him. He's he's just great. And I hope one day to meet him. But uh, we talk about Halloween. We talk about record art, album art, um, many, 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 many subjects. So I hope you enjoy it. Here it is, my interview with Howard Kramer uh, on my podcast, Too Lazy to Write with the Real John Baker. Here's the first question. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you, Jonathan? I'm good, and welcome back. Good. Um, you're, my, you're my first repeat guest. <laughs> wow, I guess I must have done something something good. Well, we left. I think we left a lot of stones unturned when we oh. uh, last spoke. Then, then let's turn over stones, shall we? Well, what I first before we we go to those stones, we have Halloween happening tomorrow, and I think yeah, I would be it would be a a mistake of mine not to ask you if you have a favorite Halloween or horror themed song. Um. Well, there's there's the clock. Classics, of course, you know, Monster Mash is <laughs> tremendous. Um, Thriller, yeah, uh, is is a great one. Um, there's one that I became uh, been made aware of much, much later. Um, uh, Zachary, uh, are you familiar with Zachary? Was he the the TV host? He was the TV host in the New York area, and then he was a radio personality there for many years. And Zachary cut a track for cameo parkway he, you know because everybody back then recorded singles because if you had some level of popularity you may as well record a record right 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 uh and um yeah Z- zachary 
record a thing called Dinner with Drac Part One. Okay. Uh, is and and he did in his you know Zachary Dracula voice, and I just find it endlessly amusing. It's just it's just very very funny and silly. Dinner with Drac. I'm gonna look for a link, a uh, YouTube link, and and uh, yes. post it with this. It was on the Cameo Parkway box set. Um, I'll I'll also admit, and this is kind of a plug. Um, there, there's a radio show on WMBR in Boston. MBR is MIT's radio station. Um, okay. The show's called Backwoods, and it's been hosted by a gentleman named John Funky for many, many years. I've been listening for about 18 years. Okay. Um, and John does a Halloween-themed show, usually the Saturday before. So if you actually go on WMBR's website now, you go to the archives, you can listen to his show from last Saturday. And it's two hours of, you know, horror themed halloween themed music and you'll he'll definitely play dinner with drag by zacherly but okay. it, it's just a great deep dive into some great rock and roll rhythm and blues and country halloween and scary songs so oh that's great that's my endorsement for uh, halloween okay and where because one of my favorites and i don't know if it's a halloween song but um they're coming to take me away <laughs> Yeah, but it was a Napoleon, or what, I can't remember. The 19th? Yes, I definitely remember it was a Roman numeral. Yes, exactly, yes. And I remember as a kid that was that was supposedly a banned record. And, ooh. Oh, really? Yeah, supposedly it was banned, who knows. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, yeah. was, and, and we didn't talk about it last time, was album art. And, oh. like, I mean, I think, you know, growing up, we, we were able to get look at LPs and everything was so large. And now we've, you know, gone down to a thumbnail almost. Yes. Um, and you're right. And there, there's a very interesting point about that because the artwork was uh, an intrinsic part of the band's identity. Um, I like to think particularly, um, well, the Rolling Stones, I think, cultivated it in a way that other people didn't. Uh, when you start with the simplicity of Beggar's Banquet, and even if you look at the unreleased version, Going to let it bleed. Sticky fingers using Warhol, the Robert Frank cover uh, images and the cover at Exile on Main Street. You know, going forward, I think they did an amazing job. Um, the iconography of the Beatles records, um, certainly Sgt. Pepper, but uh, the Klaus Vorman uh, illustration on the cover of Revolver, the Robert Whitaker photograph on the cover of uh, Rubber Soul, and certainly Meet the Beatles, uh, which I think mm-hmm. Robert Freeman shot that one. And, you know, the, the half-shaded faces, I mean, those were incredibly impactful. I can go on and on about that. But I remember when, I think it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers put out um, one of their, their last records. The the cover was done by, um, oh, it was, um, oh gosh, a, a British artist, a very famous current contemporary British artist. It may, um, Dam- it may have been Damien Hurst. But okay. I, I read an interview where he talked about part of the design element was the fact that it was going to be one inch by one inch to most people. Oh, okay. So they're aware of it, obviously. Yes. I think, I think people are, are acutely aware of it. Um, but fortunately with vinyl coming back, it, it, maybe it'll gain more meaning, uh, and, and people will have more tactile interaction with it. I mean, you know, there, there's groups of artists like a hypnosis, which was uh, Thor, um, Storm Thorgerson and, and Aubrey Powell, who did the record covers for Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, most notably. They did 10CC, many, many other ones. But some of the most famous album covers were done by them. But that gave these really talented graphic artists a platform on which to work. Um, and in a lot of ways, 
that's just not as existent anymore. Yeah, it, it definitely is a dying art. And I was actually just at a concert a week or so ago with my daughter, and um, we bought the poster. It was a Ray LaMontagne concert. Okay. And he has, and I, I, I forget the guy's name, but he does a lot of these posters for that genre of, like, there's Dave Matthews and um, Avid Brothers and, and Ray LaMontagne. He does a lot of their artwork. Yeah, there's a couple current guy, poster guys out there working very successfully, yeah. Yeah, but again, is that something that we're seeing come back again? I mean, if you think about the 60s and, well, I mean, even, you know, the 50s with with the, like, the marquees almost of posters, you know, appearing tonight and it listed everybody. Well, there was, we... you know, what was called boxing style posters. Right. Um, and in fact, there was the company called Globe, a poster company out of Baltimore, which at one point had like six locations in the country. They did like a lot of the rhythm and blues ones that are very famous. But I, I think you're right in the fact that the, the way that posters have supplanted album covers in terms of transportable art related to performers. Um, it, I think it also speaks to the fact that it's a it's a potential profit center for artists to sell these things on tour as souvenirs. So it does. When you're selling a print, wait, I mean, what did you pay for that print at the Ray LaMontagne show? Uh, it was $30. Okay, 30 bucks. What was the cost on that? I guarantee you it wasn't 15 bucks. Right. So it's, it's much higher than 100% markup. So, And when you have several hundred of them made, they, they cost, you know, depending upon the quality of the printing, of course, it goes down tremendously. It, it's a profit center. And it, it's good. For, it's, I think ultimately it's good for the artist. It's good for their brand. I hate using that term, but it really is. It's true. Um, and it's good for their identity and a connection because then, I mean, I, I bought it was a um, Hatch Show print, which is currently owned by the Country Music Hall of Fame. Sure. Is a, a historic printer. Um, I saw Van Morrison at the Ryman Auditorium several years ago, and I picked up that poster. I'm, I, I admire Hatch. I'm not a huge fan of their stuff, but again, it was my first show at the Ryman. It was Van Morrison, who you don't get a chance, is not an artist you get a chance to see very often. Yeah. And I thought the graphic actually was rather nice. So I, I think I probably dropped 25 bucks on that. I, it's funny. We were, we were in Nashville and I, we went to, to their shop in the um, Country Music Hall of Fame. Yeah. And I think I went to their clearance bin and I, I bought a poster from the Kentucky State Fair with some kids on a roller coaster and it says like two corn dogs coming up or something. I don't know. It was like $2 or something, but I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. No, it's, there is something about the about graphics, about visuals. Uh, I'm a big fan of posters, and you know, I, I I scour the internet for these major poster auctions, and I look at them like, uh, you know, a, a advertising for a, a bicycle company from France from the 1924 or something that just. I, not that I'm all that interested in bicycles or French popular culture, but right, right, blows my mind. So, uh, yeah, that's in that's, our in our. Um living room we have it's a huge poster everybody gets mad when they i ask them to hang it it's so heavy but it's from joe jackson's big world tour uh and it's a german poster sure but it's got that great graphic of him i don't know if you remember he's sort oh, of like the the yeah. silhouette yeah with um oh big oh yeah with around the, with the piano right uh the piano was um Night and day. This was sort oh, of. No, him. you're right. You're right. Big world. Yes, it's like he's traveling. It's, right. Yes. Yes, I know. With the orangish, there's an orangish uh, motif to it. Yeah, I don't exactly. 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 And of course, that was an interesting album because he only recorded three sides. <laughs> yeah. No, that was the other one he recorded live in front of an audience. He told not to say anything. So. Right. Said as well. Right. <laughs> uh, but 
what we left we off. Di- we're digressing. John. Yeah, we are digressing because I'm sitting in a room and I'm looking at my posters and I'm looking at these Funko Pops of prints and whatever, a bunch of weird stuff. But um, I wanted to talk to you about Jews in the music business. Um, yep. And I was listening to a podcast actually where they talked about, I forget who it was interviewed, um, Dennis Lambert. Lambert, is that him? Anyway. He wrote um, One Tin Soldier. Oh, the song One Tin Soldier? Yeah. Uh, But he was asked about why are there so many Jewish songwriters? And he talked about how storytelling and music has always been sort of woven into the fabric of of Judaism throughout the the years and centuries. And I'm just wondering why you think there's such a, a Jewish influence in music. Well, um... Let's just say the music business hasn't always been uh, as glamorous as it is considered today. Mm-hmm. And for the entertainment, the entertainment business in general, by uh, a gentrified society, it was it was somewhat you know there was classical entertainment, there was proper theater, and then there was the rest of the stuff for the unwashed masses. And because it was looked down upon by quote proper society. Um, which would be old line, you know, white Protestant society of late 19th century and early to mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, the music business became a place for immigrants. Uh, just to illustrate that, among the most successful early recordings to sell mm-hmm. were ethnic recordings because people who came here in the teens and 20s or even earlier wanted to hear recordings in their native tongue. So, whether it was Italian, Hungarian, Arabic, Yiddish, whatever it was, those sold well. Just to Mm -hmm. illustrate that this was not all, you know, popular, uh, this was not all uh, opera. So because of that, uh, the music business was kind of a natural thing for uh, people who were just getting out of the junk man level of the economic scale, which is where immigrant Jews were. Mm-hmm. In the uh, early part of the 20th century, you know, junk men, uh, dry goods stores. I mean, we, we know where the economic level was, where Jews were at that time. Um, so the music business, which was a nickel and dime, literally a nickel and dime business through jukeboxes, became that sort of business through whether it was saloon owners. But um, the fact that, you know, songwriting, popular songwriting was looked down upon, people who had talent still wanted to do it. I mean, look at Irving Berlin. I mean, here's a guy who was, you know, a Jewish immigrant who saw an opportunity. He had talent. He was also enterprising, created his mm-hmm. own publishing company. There was money to be made. Mm-hmm. And people saw that. Again, the major record companies at, you know, early on, DECA, RCA, and Columbia, uh, RCA, of course, which I believe was run by David Sarnoff, right? Um, right. Still looked down upon popular culture. So it had this opportunity for. Again, um, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself. Uh, minorities to come in. Why Jews necessarily? I, you know, I, I think a popular music in America. The engine of popular music in America is African Americans, mm-hmm. indisputably. I mean, jazz is a creation of African Americans. Rock and roll and rhythm and blues are creations of, of African Americans. Um, Jews and African Americans lived cheek to jowl for many, many years. 
um, their, their communities were, were inexorably tied because, I mean, the only difference between, in some cases between Jews and blacks was the color of their skin. They were still very much segregated from a lot of society. So right. because, of that, because of that, there were a lot of young people who became hip to it. I mean, the perfect example of that is uh, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Sure. Uh, and these guys really embraced the African-American idiom and, in fact, wrote some of the best rhythm and blues songs ever. And there were a number of other people like that. Um, guys like Herb Abramson, uh, who with Ahmed Erdogan and his brother Nesui, you know, formed Atlantic Records. Uh, some of the guys like, um, oh, I can't remember the ones from Los Angeles. Jeez. Uh, uh, they were modern records. The Baharis, okay? The Baharis, who, who were, uh, were uh, Sephardic Jews, right. uh, these guys were... We're, we're jukebox operators. Like, well, what do we got to do to make more nickels on the jukebox? Well, let's go record some records. What can we do? Oh, let's license them from that guy at Memphis, Sam Phillips. He's recorded a bunch of black guys. So it, it became, they created their own industry because they had to. No one else was doing it for them. Okay. And, and there you go. And then, I mean, the, the hipster factor too. I mean, you know, people who glom onto things early um i think part of it is and i know i'm kind of going going far afield here um i, I think that within the jewish community there's always been expand your mind learn more uh take in more things learn read do mm -hmm. be part of things um maybe in the broadest sense it's tikkun olam right and in, in that case you know you're hearing things that excite your soul be a part of it and I, I think a lot of people responded to African American music and decided to put their own, bring their own thing to it. So there you well, there's, I mean, like, like you just discussed, there's definitely is a, a very big Jewish imprint in, in popular music. Yeah. Um, and maybe just for a second or two, we could talk about the Brill Building and and the people sure. who worked there. Yeah. I mean, you had Carol King in there. You had um, oh, her writing partner's name slips in my mind right now. Please. Correct me. Oh, uh, her uh, husband. Uh, her husband, yeah. Car uh, Carol King and uh, Jerry Goffin. Right, and a number of others. You had Neil Diamond in there. Um, Lieber and Stoller. Lieber and Stoller. Uh, yeah. Neil Sedaka, um, on and on and on. Um, I mean, Seymour Stein got a start there. Uh, I mean, Don Kirshner was uh, as a publisher. Um, again, New York being the center of American Jewish culture at the time. Um, it was, if you were a kid who was in into musical theater and you wanted to do your own thing or whatever it was, it's where you went. Um, why were they drawn to it more than non-Jews? Again, I, I, I can't really come up with a definitive answer other than to say, I think that American Jews had an affinity for African-American culture just because of our proximity to it. It's very interesting. It's interesting. And yeah, like you said, we were sort of, it was a, it was a difference of skin color, which is, yeah, I mean, Jews, Jews weren't allowed into a lot of places. I mean, they just, it was less obvious at times. It was easier for a Jew to pass than an African-American. That's true. That's true. Um, I, I don't want to end it there. I feel like... I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because it, it becomes much more, it becomes much more involved because the music business grew so quickly. And yeah. it, it, you know, from the advent of rock and roll, and actually even goes before that, it goes to... Um, the, the the musician strike in uh, 1947, uh, the advent of, of recorded music on radio, uh, because there, there, that was a huge thing. At one point, you could only have music performed live. There's a very limited amount of recordings that could be played. When 
um, recorded music records could be played on the radio instead of live music performances. The fact that captured records uh, created a whole larger market. And then there was a, the demographic shift of teenage, the whole teenage market, the explosion of rock and roll. And uh, again, the first one being in the 50s, and then the bigger one, of course, being in the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the growth of African-American music uh, as popular music. Um, part of it certainly was self-determined. Motown uh, was an African-American run company. However, there were a number of Jews who worked there. Barney Ailis, most notably, who was their head of sales for many, many years. Um, uh, uh, Jerry, um, uh, Jerry Wexler, his relation, he, he who was a co-president at, at um, Atlantic Records, and he went in and saw the, the, the viability of the music that was coming out of Memphis, and Stax Records became part of Atlantic. Um, it because of the growth of it, it again attracted more and more people who wanted to be a part of it. Um, and maybe the people just saw a connection. Maybe people heard a connection. Have you been uh, or did you watch? I'm jumping um, the Ken Burns documentary that was just aired on PBS uh, Country I, Music. I, I watched uh, several of the episodes. I'm not through it yet. I got through uh, Hank Williams. Okay, I only watched, I think it was uh, Outlaws. It was dealing with, like, uh, Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. What, what did you think of it, what you've seen so far? Uh, um, well, I, I, first of all, I think Ken Burns is a brilliant filmmaker. Uh, I, and for me, I like learning more and more about the early stuff, and they do phenomenal research. Uh, I, I really enjoyed what I saw. Um, there was some footage of Hank Williams that I never had never seen before, and I've seen just about most of them. I've done a lot of work into Hank Williams over the years. Um, so it's, it's just very, very touching to see music that, that sometimes people take for granted. I think country music, particularly it's earlier years take for granted, get uh, the spotlight it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. The episode I was watching also dealt with sort of the beginnings of bluegrass and mm -hmm. Bill Monroe and yeah. And I liked how it kind of, because it went from, you know, that Bill Monroe and then into Porter Wagner and then into Dolly Parton and just sort of, it really like flowed very smoothly, I found. Yeah, he's, Burns is just remarkably good at building up the, a long trajectory of a story. Um, I mean, how many hours is that thing? 16 hours? Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of story, man. It's a lot yeah. of music, a lot of talking heads. And he makes it work. And I think the people he got to speak about it, uh, most notably uh, Marty Stewart, uh, who, yes. you know, from my personal experience, I can tell you Marty Stewart is a brilliant man and uh, who has an possesses an incredible amount of knowledge and practical experience in it. So to hear when Marty talks about these things, it is the knowledge of the ages, you know, even though he's, you know, barely past 60. Yeah. Well, there does seem to be like um like within country music and i'm sure it's it's everywhere but what i noticed was in that was their love like you said of the history of where they came from yes yes they definitely don't take that for granted that that others no, no country, country is is all about tradition you know um and matter of fact one of the the gentlemen that the one um scholar as it were who was in there whose name i can't recall i think he's from uh, texas kept on saying you know country music is built entirely on nostalgia Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a very interesting observation because, you know, conversely, hip hop is not built on nostalgia. Hip hop is built on now, right now, mm -hmm. not yesterday, not the day before yesterday, 
but this moment that we're existing in right now and how long can we stretch that moment? Um, and then it doesn't look back very much, um, until whatever that moment passes and then people want to recapture it. So, um, whereas rock and roll, um, has, has a couple of stop starts in it. And I think, uh, the people who appreciate the roots of it, you know, are, are aging out, you know, they're dying off. And there were, I mean, I've always had the theory, and I may have even said this the last time we spoke, Jonathan, is that the further you get away from the root of something, the less authentic it can be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when a a punk rock band from 2019 talks about, you know, the the overwhelming influence of, you know, I don't know, Fallout Boy, uh, I, you know, not nothing against Fallout Boy, but they're very much down the line of the progress of this. Right. You know, um, when someone like, uh, you know, Jack White talks about, uh, Charlie Patton and his importance, I think that's very, very important. Um, it, it, it's, it's much, much better for music overall when people can keep going back to the root and country does that and country, uh, does that in a way popular country. Now, if you listen to contemporary country radio, it just sounds like, you know, overamplified rock and roll as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Well, I mean that like. In the 80s, what was it, Mutt Lang, who had gone from producing uh, Def Leppard yeah. to Shania Twain? Well, yeah. Um, th- of course, there was their marriage. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> um, but I also think that, you know, she sought out him because she saw the brilliance of his records. And, you know, I'm going to say something now that people consider heretical. I think Mutt Lang, the Def Leppard records are Mutt Lang records. They just happen to have their name on it and they sing on it. He's the one who made those great records. And I think she saw the brilliance in those records. Um, you know, I'm, I don't want to take anything away from, from Def Leppard, but without Mutt, Mutt Lang, you know, it, it wouldn't have been the same. Right. Uh, he, uh, Robert John Mutt Lang, for those who don't know, we're talking about <laughs> Mutt being his nickname, um, saw Shania as a challenge. How do you take this person who's, you know, a country artist and make them an international pop sensation. And he, he knew the math, you know, yeah. and she, and she was willing to do it no differently, no differently, may I add, than Taylor Swift has done. Right. Um, and Taylor Swift has done it too. I think even greater success than Shania Twain did. You, I can't believe I'm, I'm doing this cause I'm, I'm guilty of jumping all over the place and I, I don't want to do that, but whatever it works. Um, <laughs> you, you were just talking about Jack White and that reminded me of the uh, the documentary they did with him and the Edge and Jimmy Page. Yeah, uh, it might get loud. It might get loud. And there, there's a time, like within the last ten years, where we saw a lot of movies, documentaries about smaller aspects of the music industry. Like we saw the Muscle Shoals one, and then there was uh, Twenty Feet from Stardom, the Motown one. Uh, the one that Dave Grohl did about the, I can't remember the name of it, but Son- it was a, he did Sonic Highways, and then he also did uh, right one about the uh, recording studio in Los Angeles. The, yeah, that's the one. Like, <clears throat> why do you think we're telling the stories of just these niche parts of the music industry? Well, I, I, I think certain stories lend themselves to it. I mean, Muscle Shoals certainly does. Twenty feet from stardom, you know, just you know, sorry to correct you, was was about backup singers, right? Sorry, and, yeah, and being and being near fame and the proximity and what it's like to be that person. 
um, the, the filmmaker, uh, Morgan, um, oh gosh, I can't remember. I'm only getting Morgan's name. Um, who won an Oscar for that, mind you, um, understood the human story of that. I mean, he also did a great documentary on uh, Ray Charles that, uh, full disclosure, I appeared in. Okay. Uh, now, um, he's also done a number of other great things like that. The stories merit being told. And I guess for those who are participants, you know, Dave Grohl, when he did the one about that, uh, Sound City, that was it, Sound That's City. That's it, yeah. Sound City. Um, I, I, it's a very inside baseball sort of thing. However, the story goes beyond that because the records that were made at this humble little studio were astounding. You know, the, the, the amount of, you know, Fleetwood Mac and Tom Petty and Johnny Cash and Foo Fighters. And, you know, these are records that touch people's lives. So if there's a common point to them that people don't otherwise know, and when the studio manager gets a little daylight because she was a very important person in that. I can't remember her name, but she was definitely pointed out in Sound City. I think it's great because it's not just the names above the title who are important sometimes. Um, Muscle Shoals was a very interesting thing because I don't know if you've ever been in that part of the world. No. I've been to, I've been to Muscle Shoals in Florence a, a number of times. You know, there's not a whole lot there, man. Yeah. And the fact that at one point, I think there were 29 working recording studios in this very small, very rural area. And a number of remarkably successful records came out of there over a remarkable period of time. That's worth talking about. It's yeah. absolutely worth talking about. You know, the Motown story has been told time and time again. I know Showtime just did that, that other document, another documentary. And it's great that Barry Gordy and, and Smokey Robinson, who were there from day one are still here to talk about it. You know, Barry's mm -hmm. going to be 90, I think. Um, God, God bless him. Um, you know, that only could occur at that place at that time under the vision of that individual. And maybe that'll inspire someone else to do something. Right. And I think they're very important stories to be told. No different than if you tell, and this is an odd parallel, but a parallel nonetheless, there are many, many stories from the Holocaust from, from many different countries. Yeah. Uh, from many different ages and ethnicities and religious, and whether they were, you know, Catholic or Roma or Jewish or homosexual, the, the the point is they have stories that need to be told, and none of them are are less than valid. That's very true. Very true. There was a, a an interesting documentary I saw once about the uh, <clears throat> Israeli astronaut whose name everything for I'm escaping me today. Yeah. Um, but it was the mission that burned up when it uh, came back. But oh, he, oh, sorry, not not, uh, not Columbia Challenger. It was yeah, yeah. yeah. It it burned up on on reentry. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but he, they told a story about how he was given a small Torah um, uh -huh. that had survived the Holocaust to bring to space, um, and it was all about how. No, you know what? It wasn't a tour. I apologize. It was a painting someone had done in one of the camps and oh. he had brought it to space. And it was to sort of, for him, it was to symbolize how we had come from the lowest point of, of humanity yes. to now we're at a point where, you know, Jews are soaring in space. Yes. And, uh, and it was interesting. And he wasn't able to obviously complete that mission was the story they told. So, a Canadian astronaut, again, forget it, Steve, 
it wasn't Chris Hatfield. It was another. Anyway, he they were friends, and he was able to bring this Torah to space to sort of finish the mission for him. That's really wonderful. I yeah, it was. I was unaware of that. It was. It was actually on Nova. I think I just happened to watch it one night. Oh. Um, so we talked about art. We've talked about uh, Jews and everywhere. Yeah, Jews in the music business. We talked yes. about Halloween. Well, and again, you know, Jews in the music business because again, we talk about the business, and then again, then there's the performers, there's the musicians. Yes, and I I, I find it interesting the um, the shorthand it's spoken in, like, oh, did you know that Joey Ramone is Jewish? Like, okay, yeah. that's fine. You know, how did his Jewishness affect that? I think there were many other. I think it just happens to be Jewish. I think. You know, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, okay, they were born and raised in this particular, in the faith. And, you know, there's, how did it affect their music? How did it affect their approach to things? I mean, Dylan is probably the most obvious. Lou Reed is actually fairly obvious, too. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, the you know, guys like Hal Blaine, you know, they recently departed Hal Blaine, the drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he's a, he, he played the, you know, he, he played the Borscht Belt as a kid, you know? Yeah. Um, why were they drawn to it? What, what was it about their identity? The one thing I can tell you about Hal Blaine is he spoke fluent Yiddish. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, fluent Yiddish. Uh, and, you know, here's a guy who who did that, who bridged from the jazz area and played on hundreds and hundreds of incredible rock and pop records of the se- 60s and 70s and even into the 80s. Um, how, did their, how did their Jewishness affect them? I'm not entirely sure. A lot of them would... Uh, what what they'd say, but the the shorthand thing bothers me about it. But there, you know, there do seem there does seem to be uh, a fair amount. Of, oh yeah, Perry Farrell, you know, Perry Bernstein from uh, right, Porno for Pyros, uh, very enterprising guy, very enterprising guy. I remember as a kid, um, and it's it's not a musician, but when we found out that uh, Henry Winkler was Jewish. <laughs> that was like a point of pride you know that like this guy he's just like me he's the Fonz yes but he's he's Jewish now that, that yeah, now you're reminding me of the Adam Sandler routine you know the uh, Hanukkah song yeah uh, exactly <laughs> <laughs> but Very I mean you know my father always goes back to um, Sandy Koufax not pitching on Yom Kippur yes and that was a, just a, a big deal. moment just a very big deal Right. Even uh, someone recently told me he wasn't so much an observant Jew, but it was the fact that he was saying this is more important to me than the World Series. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so for me, when we found it, I, I always like to say that Henry Winkler was my Sandy Koufax. You know, he. <laughs> I, I get that. No, I, I totally get that. Because uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's very true to a different generation. I mean, I was too young for the Sandy Koufax. Uh, right. I recall it, but I was just, you know, I was a little kid. Yeah, no, I would hear it every year at Yom Kippur. You know, Sandy Koufax didn't pitch today. I know. There you, yeah. I know. <laughs> yes, you remind me every year. Yes. I, I actually said to my rabbi, because we used to, we're from Canada. We moved here. And, and sure. uh, every year <clears throat> over either Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, there was always some kid. And maybe this was true for you, too. Some kid with a transistor radio uh, listening to the baseball game. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. this was being in the Washington area. This was the first year where I actually cared about the playoffs. <laughs> One more, baby. One more. I know. I know. The city's like they're they're on eggshells, waiting, and and they, and they need a relief. <laughs> they need a joyous relief. Yeah. 
Yeah, that would be, I'd be so interested about the, the parade and the invitation and all of that. Yeah, well, that's a whole different story. That, yeah, that goes with it. <laughs> hey, Let's just under that now. Um, on another topic, and I don't know if we talked about this, but, and if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. Um, your feelings about restaurants like the Hard Rock Cafe acting in a way as sort of museums to rock and roll. Okay. Um, th- well, there you go. It's it, they're not museums. Okay. At all. Let's let's get that straight. Um, Hard Rock cafes uh, are casinos and hotels and restaurants. First and foremost, their job is to make money. Um, you know, when the, currently the Hard Rock brand is owned by the Seminole Nation, mm-hmm. and prior to that, it was owned by an English company called Rank PLC. And, uh, you know, the Seminoles bought it because they wanted to expand their gaming. And to them, it was a very good brand to do so. Um, the thing about the Hard Rock is that um, they do have a tremendous collection. And they have the resources to approach artists directly and, and make them offers they can't refuse. Uh, and not in a bad way, not in a gangster way, but just yeah, like... Yeah. I, and I mean, I've had a number of conversations with significant performers when I went to collect from them. They said, you know, uh, I sold it to the Hard Rock. They offered me stupid money. What can I say? Like, okay, yeah. get yeah. it. I don't, but ultimately, it's there to be exploited for these entities to make money. Uh, do they conserve their, uh, do they take care of their collections moderately? Okay. Um, is the, are they under obligation to? Absolutely not. They're a commercial concern. They're not museums. They're not. They're not a not-for-profit. Right. They're the ultimate for-profit. They're they're interesting places to go to see stuff. Um, a lot of it's real. I've seen my fair share of fakes. But yeah. then again, you know the the world is full of fake autographs, and sports stuff, and so why not fake rock and roll stuff? Uh, ultimately, the majority of their stuff is good. Uh, a number of years ago they had a guy working there who had been in the music business in the seventies and eighties. He since passed away. Um, but he had a phone book where he could call people at home and say, Hey, I want to come out and see you and, and, and buy stuff from you. And he did. And he actually really, um, rapidly expanded their collection. Um, his name's eluding me right now, but, uh, he was a nice guy, but he was, you know, seeing there in his vision and they gave him the, the budget to do it and he did it. So yeah. there you go. It made my top of the rock hall a little bit harder at the time. Yeah, I would imagine so. That was you you did you ever find yourself you must have competing with them? Well, no, because we didn't have a oh. budget. So therefore there's no competition. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, when, when someone's walking in and saying, I'll give you $25,000 for that jacket you wore in a video and I'm, and my is, Hey, can you loan it to us? Or can you yeah. give it to us? There's no competition there. Is there anything in your personal collection like that you have in your house that is so, uh, well, invaluable to you that, that, that you've collected? No, um, no. I, I, I have a lot. I have a few things that I like a lot. And I'm actually at the point of I'm, I'm selling things. I, I've actually bought a number of pieces on eBay recently. Um, but just because I have so much stuff, I mean, without giving away too much because for security concerns, sure. I mean, I have a couple of posters I'm very, I'm particularly fond of. Right. Um, they're not hanging in my house or it's you know, rolled up in tubes. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple things, not a, a ton. Um, you know, years ago, it's kind of, it's a stupid little tchotchke really. Um, 
a, a friend of mine who was a dealer gave me after my after I revealed that I I was I thought it was awesome was um a doll. It's like it's a three inch doll. Um, it's about the size of a troll doll. But this company, I can't remember the name of the company. In the sixties, put out a series of dolls of pop artists. Like there was a Mamas and the Papas dolls. Okay. There were um, Dave Clark Five dolls. This is a Mitch Ryder doll. Oh. <laughs> you know, and as you know, you grew up in Canada. I grew up in Detroit, and Mitch Ryder, you know, loomed large. So I have this nineteen sixties Mitch Ryder doll, and he's got a silver lame, you know, outfit on. And, and to yeah. me, it's a riot. I love that thing. That's um, the other thing I, I, uh, you know, I stopped collecting really when I was gotten, gotten the job at the rock hall, because you can't compete with that and you shouldn't compete with that. It's unethical. Um, so the thing I started getting was signed first editions. You know, okay. I, I collect rock biographies, so I got to be very friendly with a number of, of authors. And so I have a bunch of signed first editions of books that are, that are meaningful to me. Um, like Peter, I have a number of, you know, signed books from Peter Goralnik and David Ritz. Um, and, um, you know, th those are meaningful to me. Those are yeah. Meaningful. It's just stuff you'll never part with. Cause it's, yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, they're just, they're meaningful to me because they're, they're books that meant that, that touched my lives and the authors are people who I admire greatly. Well, that's great. That's great that you're able to have benefited personally and been able to keep these things. Yeah. Um, and pass them on, hopefully. Yeah, at some point. Some yeah. point. See what my, you know, hopefully, hopefully when I'm gone, my kids won't throw them on a fire or something. <laughs> Are your kids just as passionate about uh, music, or do they have other interests? They have their own interest in music. Uh, my, my son is deeply into hip-hop. However, his, 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 his has grown. My daughter uh, likes pop music and show tunes. However, she's becoming more and more curious about other things. And I'm going to give credit to my wife for, who I think spends more time in the car with my daughter than I do, saying when a song comes on, like, oh, you have to listen to this. Yeah. Um, she does know that whenever Buddy Holly comes on, you don't turn it off. Okay. <laughs> there, there are certain artists that whenever it comes on, like, nope, you leave that on. See, and I'm like, when Rush comes on, I immediately turn it off. <laughs> well... I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let that pass without comment. Other than you know, I there are certain things that uh, you know I like my kids to become more and more uh, into. Uh, well, mine is I mine never is, shoved it down their throat. I, I never shoved it down their throat. Well, my my like dislike of Rush is not just like you know bad, but it's also unpatriotic like as a well, Canadian, in your sense, yes you you really could get drummed out of the dominion for that yeah i absolutely could <laughs> but you know these these funko pops that you've seen them right they're little sure, sure absolutely so there are there is a rush set and i collect them so i'm i feel compelled even though i don't like the band i feel compelled to own them because okay. you know i'd love to see a leonard Cohen one though <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's, you know what Coming soon. You, you can bet on it. It's going to happen. Well, but like they could, because they do a lot of like, they'll do, they, right now they have like an Alex Trebek one. They have Alex Trebek with the mustache and afro and current Alex Trebek. Oh, that's sweet. You know, so they could do a, a young Leonard Cohn with like, you know, the turtleneck and then the old Leonard Cohn with the fedora. That would be quite awesome, actually. Yeah. That he always reminded me of, at that point, he was kind of embracing William Burroughs, I thought, in that look. <laughs> well i think he also understood you know you, you looking clean is looking clean yeah he, he understood that 
Yeah, my my grandmother, uh, my mother grew up in Montreal, and of course, everybody growing up Jewish in Montreal claims they were related to him. Of course, but my grandmother called him a pervert. <laughs> she she wouldn't allow his music to be played because he was a pervert. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm sure she was old school. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but you, you know what? With that, I am, I'm going to end it there. We've been talking here for God, close to 40 minutes. Yes. And uh, do you ever get to the D.C. area? Uh, I've been for a number of years. But if I do, I'll let, you, I'll let you know. I would love that. I don't know if I'm ever going to get to Cleveland anytime soon. But I, I might like to take my kids to the, to the Hall of Fame. Maybe something for them to see. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure they, they would dig it. Yeah, they would. And you're, of course, in the Cleveland area. I'd look you up if you wouldn't mind. Not at all. Please do. Um, we could go down to the flats. Is that still a, a thing? Uh, yeah, it's actually had a big comeback, yes. it's uh, It went away and came back. Oh, okay. Very, yes, in a very big way. Yeah, my I think I, I don't know if I mentioned it. My brother and I, I think I told you this last time. I was in Toronto, and he's like, we should go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's only three hours away. And it's not. It's five. What are you yeah, talking about? Exactly. Yeah, it's three hours away. He's high. Yeah. So we, we drove, and, and then that night we went down to the flats, and we ate at Dick's Last Resort. Um, not there anymore. Not there time. anymore, right? Not yeah. there anymore. Been leveled. As they say in Yiddish, a true mensch. That's what Howard is. He uh, He's great to talk to. Like I said, a walking encyclopedia of all things rock and roll. Um Right down to who did art. Uh, not Art Garfunkel. Although we did mention Art Garfunkel. Uh, I'm sure Mrs. Garfunkel did art. <laughs> Ooh, a Halloween laugh. Uh, I know I said I was going to post the link to the Zachary song, um, but you can search it out yourself. Just go to YouTube and type in Zachary Halloween song. Happy. It's a good song, actually. Um, and I'm sure if I wasn't going to worry about getting sued by nobody who listens to this podcast i'd post it right at the end of this but i'm not gonna do that um i am gonna have a sip of coffee i got a big day ahead of me i uh i'm gonna post this and then i'm going to um carve some pumpkins because uh the kids didn't and i got an idea for one i'm gonna give that a go And then I'm going to go to Michael's to see if I can get any Halloween gear at 70% off. And where else am I going to go? Um, Oh, I've always had this idea, and I'm I'm going to execute it tonight. I've always wanted to um, bring my barbecue to the front of the house, and I bought hamburgers and hot dogs. And when parents are out trick-or-treating with their kids tonight, I am going to have hamburgers and hot dogs. And no, nothing's gluten-free, nothing is Impossible Burger, it's all meat and gluten. Um, but I'm going to have hamburgers and hot dogs for them in the hopes that I help brighten their day with a little trick-or-treating. And if a kid happens to want one, yeah, I'll give a kid a, a hamburger or a hot dog. So with that, I want to thank you for listening. Too Lazy to Write is the podcast. Uh, you can find me um, on the World Wide Web, uh, www dot the number two the word lazy the number two the word right too lazy to write uh if you found this podcast you know it's on itunes it's also on google play next week i want to talk maybe or maybe i'll just do this on the weekend if i'm kind of bored um about the film festival i didn't even mention it it ended last week 
it ended on Sunday, and it was great. Um, but I'm going to talk ad nauseum about that one uh, later. Maybe I'll just do a little side uh, sidecast, sidecast, sidecast podcast. Uh, so there you have it. Thank you so very, very much for listening. Uh, once again, my big thanks to Howard Kramer. And until next time, here's the song. Too lazy to write. We're only thinking about And everyone is welcome with the real John Baker.